0: This is Swordplay. Alex, Christian Broadcasting Network launched CBN News Channel this month, a 24-hour Christian news channel, first one uh, ever, that will broadcast national and international news stories that aren't being reported
1: by the secular mainstream media. You tuning into this? That's so exciting, Nick. That means we're finally going to hear some things that are going on in other parts of the world, like South America?
0: Uh, no, I don't think they're going to cover South America. Oh. What about Australia? No. India? Nope. China or Russia? Let me check. Not unless it's voting season. Africa?
1: Japan? Doesn't seem so. I think it's just U.S., Europe, and Israel. Hmm... Doesn't sound like international news. Maybe they should rename it Dispensational News.
0: There it is. (laughs) This is Swordplay.
1: We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Haggai Chapter 2. Haggai Chapter 2. Now, Nick, uh, what kind of questions do we have lined up for Haggai chapter 2?
0: Well, we've got a lot of good questions. I guess now would be a good time to remind our audience, though, if you haven't already done so, hit pause, go grab your Bible, turn to Haggai chapter 2, read that chapter, read the whole book. It's only two chapters long and take you five, ten minutes to do that. And that way, you'll be able to track along with us as we answer these questions, like the first question, Alex, from verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, is there any significance to the date
1: that's found in this verse? Well, let's see. One thing I found is that this date in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says the 21st of the seventh month. That is technically the last day of the Feast of Booths. Hmm. Now, if you don't know what the Feast of Booths is, it's, it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot, and it starts on the 15th of the seventh month. So last day of it would be the 21st. It's the most joyous festival, Nick, out of all the festivals. It's where all the Israelites travel to Jerusalem. There were three big ones they had to travel for, and this would have been the third big one. And uh, they travel to Jerusalem. They go camping in their tabernacles. That's what a tabernacle is, a tent. And they have festivities. Everybody goes. Nobody is left out. Husband, wife, male servant, female servant, children, children. Everybody, the whole household. So they go and they remember a couple of things. They remember the Exodus. They remember God providing for them in the wilderness during their journey after the Exodus into the promised land. And they also remember all the good harvest that they've gotten as a result of Yahweh and his bringing of the rains in the right amount and at the right time. So they give thanks for that harvest, which is why, Nick, the festival is also called the Feast of, of the in gathering Hmm. so that gathering in of all the crops and you're looking at your good harvest for the year and then you're sharing it and celebrating and you're having a big festival so based on what the rest of this chapter will say though nick it doesn't seem like they're going to have much to offer it doesn't seem like they're gathering in a whole lot of crops it doesn't seem like they were too joyous we'll get into that in just a few moments fyi nick Feast of Booths 2018 was the last week of September. Hmm, Was there a blood moon? Uh, Three of them at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, though, uh, verse 2-1 is 28 days after chapter 1, verse 15, which was 23 days after chapter 1, verse 1. So from 1, verse 1 to 2-1 is 51 days. Wow.
0: Um, You know, what I found was that guys a lot smarter than me, they have figured out the dates of these books and the dates that are mentioned in these books. And this one happens to be October of the year 520 B.C. And wow. And so what that means to me is Haggai
1: is the original Mr. October. So take that play off baseball. <laughs> well, Nick, uh, in verse 2, there's some verses in verse 2 and 3, really. It talks about who's, who's alive here that saw the previous temple. Now, that's an interesting question, Nick. How old would the witnesses of the first temple be when looking at the second temple in Haggai's day?
0: Yeah, Haggai is ministering as a prophet to the exiles, again, in the year, it seems, 520 BC. So 520 years before Jesus shows up, that's when he's ministering. The temple of Solomon was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the third deportation in the year 586 BC. And you can see 2 Kings chapter 25 for more information on that. Mm. So using those dates, 66 years have passed from the destruction of Solomon's temple to the rebuilding of the temple in Haggai's day, 66 years. Now, no doubt there are some and perhaps even several of the exiles who had lived through the exile and perhaps they'd been taken as preteen or teenagers. I think of Daniel, for example. He was oh, probably yeah. a teenager when he was taken into Babylonian captivity, survived the entire exile. Uh, so there are probably some and perhaps several who could remember the splendor of that temple. A 10-year-old would be now 76. Teenagers uh, would be in their early 80s. So, Wow. Um, yeah, so you probably have several who were there who remember the glory of the Solomonic temple. And perhaps Haggai himself is one of those who came through the exile, and he himself remembers the former glory of uh, Solomon's temple. Um, he says, is it nothing in your eyes? So, um, and by the way, no one argues with Haggai. Yeah, yeah that's right. They, they know <laughs> the new temple is just a pale shadow of the former one. So, uh, yeah that, there were no doubt some who were still living in five twenty who had seen the temple in all its glory before it was destroyed in five eighty six
1: mm, that makes sense like, yeah, yeah, they sound like they need some encouragement,
0: yeah, I think so um in verse four, you have Haggai exhorting them to uh be courageous, be strong um Alex, why would
1: they need that courage? Well, that word there for uh, be courageous, be strong, it's the Hebrew hazak. And it's the same word of encouragement used when given to Joshua in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 18, where God keeps saying over and over again, Joshua, be strong and courageous. This is that word. And so it's mentioned three times in this one verse uh, alone. The idea is for Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant to all be strong. The word means to strengthen, to harden. And of course, this is a good hardening. This isn't the hardening of the heart. It's the hardening of your um, faithfulness and uh, focus on what God is wanting you to do. You stand firm. That's what it means. It's possible that what they had dreamed of and what they had hoped for and what they expected to happen upon their return to the, you know, the Holy Land, Jerusalem, that when they got there, uh, the reality did not match their dreams. So if their expectations were crushed, then they're going to need some encouragement. They're going to need to know that, uh, especially in the absence of the glory cloud resting upon the temple, like uh, was written about in the days of Solomon, they needed to know that nonetheless, Yahweh is with them. Mm. And just like he was with them during their captivity in Babylon, he's with them now. And so I think part of this might even be going into preparing them for what he's about to say in the later verses. So maybe they needed to know that uh, it wasn't what they were doing for him that made them great. But it was that God is going to be with them in what they do while they work. And that's what makes them great. It's the presence of God. It reminds me a little bit, Nick, of uh, the Great Commission, Jesus saying, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right. Well, Nick, uh, in verse 5, there is a reference made to the promise which was made to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Um, Nick, what promise is God referring to? Yeah, it's
0: um, verse 5 in my English standard talks about um, the covenant, according to the covenant covenant. Um, here it says the promise you have a marginal reading in your New American standard that tells us it literally means word. Um, so yeah, what word could uh, be in view here? I think it's it could be Exodus chapter 29 and verses 45 and 46. Uh, which say, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. So you have this, kind of what you were talking about, the presence language uh, there, that that the, the divine presence is with them. That's, I think, the promise here, or the covenant, or the word that's in view, the promise of the divine presence. And that had been evidenced throughout the Exodus from Egypt Uh, over and over. God had shown his presence to be among his people. And now here we are, uh, centuries later, and Yahweh is promising his people again, his divine presence with this, if you will, this new Exodus from Babylon that's taken place. So. Since God is with His people, and again, this kind of bleeds back into what you were talking about with the take courage and the be strong and all that, since God is with His people, they can face the challenges. They can do the work that Yahweh is calling them to do um, and face the challenges he is calling them to face. Um, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it does, especially um, the idea that, okay, He's promised the presence is with you, but... In this new Exodus uh, there's no parting of the Red Sea and uh, there's no cloud by day and pillar of fire by night Uh, there's no Mount Sinai with a huge pillar of fire resting on top of it Um, it's a little different there's no tabernacle with the glory of God resting upon it it's a little different I think maybe they were expecting something else and they didn't get what they were expecting God's Spirit abiding in their midst, it might recall a couple of things in their mind. Uh, The things we mentioned, the angel of Yahweh going before the Israelites in the Exodus as a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God's general promise of just being with them and dwelling with them, like you mentioned, even like Jesus mentions to us in the Great Commission. Uh, There was also, though, uh, interestingly enough, in Exodus, a story of the people receiving uh, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Wisdom in order that the craftsmen would have the ability to do what they needed uh, to do to build the tabernacle and all of its vessels. That's pretty interesting, too, because uh, Haggai was asking them to commence with the building project. And so uh, maybe they were afraid of lacking the skill necessary. That'd be legitimate. But again, on the other hand, uh, if it's chronological order, he already asked them, like, what's it look like compared to the other temple? So I get the idea that it is... Pretty much finished. It just doesn't look that great. So, uh, couple, yeah, interesting, interesting things going on there.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, but I think as we come here to now verse six, that's going to bring us to our tough text,
1: tough text. for today. Tough text. Uh, what t- the tough text for today, Nick? Uh, it's for verse six and verse twenty-one. Okay. And here it is. What does it mean? to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the land.
0: Yeah, so verse 6 says, this is uh, what God is saying, Yahweh of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Uh, And that refrain is repeated in verse 21, um, where uh, God says through Haggai to tell Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. What I found is there are three major interpretations of this verse. Uh, the first is a messianic view, the second is a non-messianic view, and then the third is kind of a blend of those two. Okay. Um, so the messianic view, the first view, means that this is a cryptic reference to Messiah, when he would come. Um, the second non-messianic view says that this refers to uh, material resources financial support for the temple project to be completed and then the third view which is the blended view kind of tries to find a middle way for both uh, a contemporary application of this in the days of haggai where you have the material resources silver and gold and all that coming in It's going to be mentioned in verse 8, specifically the silver and the gold. But then also have in view the coming of Messiah with the glory that he would bring into this house of the Lord. Verse 9 talks about that. Um, So a few views there for you to to mull over. But one thing here that's uh, emphasized when it comes to kind of a theological perspective yahweh as the sky shaker
1: <laughs>
0: that's not a new motif among I the like prophets that. yeah yeah um even pre-exile prophets mention it isaiah 13 verse 13 talks about how uh, god says i will make the heavens tremble joel 2 verse 10 the heavens tremble uh, so this isn't necessarily new language among the prophets uh, but uh, it is, I want to emphasize, highly figurative and apocalyptic prophetic language that is intended to signal judgment um, upon a given nation. Uh, for example, Isaiah, when he uses that language, is in reference to Babylon. Joel, when he uses it, it's actually in reference to God's people, Judah. Right. And so here the image is somewhat comical um, as. Yahweh, the sky shaker, comes down. Verse 7, he says, I'm going to shake all the nations. It's as if Yahweh is going to pick the nations up by their feet and shake them until their lunch money comes out to finance his temple. (laughs) Right? That's kind of the image that's pictured here, at least what I see
1: here. Um, Alex, what do you say? Give me your money, little boy. That's right. (laughs) Uh, I think the heavens and earth is definitely... Like classical creation language. And it is used, as you said, Nick, in prophecy to describe the judgment of God, especially coming against a nation. And it brings this idea that something is about to end, but that also means that something is about to begin. Right. right? So the addition of the sea and the land being shaken is particularly interesting to me because I've been studying Revelation a lot. And um, I've noticed that Revelation will use that same language a lot the sea and the land. And I've come to believe that the sea often denotes, uh, in the Old Testament, the Gentile nations. I think that's prophetic stock language that can be used that way. And the land is prophetic stock language that can denote Israel in prophetic language. So for God to shake all of it, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, to me it must mean something pretty big. So looking at the wealth angle, uh, Exodus 12, 35 through 36 mentions how God made the Israelites so detestable in the sight of the Egyptians that the Egyptians gave them mass amounts of gold and silver just to get out of town. That's right. And so it says that in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, These resources became the funds and materials for building the tabernacle. Now, you fast forward to this new exodus with Haggai, and one might see how they felt uh, under-resourced. You know, maybe they got a foundation, maybe they got... The basic structure down, but uh, maybe it is yet to be adorned with all the uh, gold and silver, and they just don't have any gold and silver to adorn it with. You know, according to uh, later verses in chapter 2 that we'll get to, it says that at the time, they were actually starving. That's right. Now, here's another thing to bring into the picture. Hebrews chapter 12, this New Testament Hebrews 12 verses 25-29 that uh, Hebrew writer he takes this verse and he does apply it messianically and he says that we have received the unshakable kingdom but there remains a shakable kingdom uh, a heaven and an earth yet still to be removed so as far as that verse goes how does the Hebrew writer take this Haggai verse and apply it what does he mean I think there's two options in my mind that I lean towards. The first one is uh, you could be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, right. that that is going to be shaken and wiped out. And that fits. I think Hebrews was written before AD 70. Uh, it makes sense to talk about the temptation to go back to old shadowy things. Now there also though, because there is this judgment on the powers and nations thing going on here that what this is talking about that both in this book and in Hebrews is that there's going to be a displacing a judging and removing and replacing of powers in the heavenly places so in my viewpoint nick in times past the rebellious angels like the dominions thrones powers rulers of darkness they they had authority over the gentiles it was a legitimate authority that it was stripped from him by Jesus at the cross, and it's going to be they, they're placeholders that are going to be replaced, and I think we're going to replace them. So that's sort of where I'm leaning at right now. Is that so, this is so, even still stuff that's happening? So leaning back into
0: the Haggai text, is that is that how you would take verse six and verse 21 here as well as as a with a an angelological interpretation?
1: Uh, you know, I would probably, yeah, sort of lean that way at this point in time because of the, uh, even because of the questions to come about like, when did this happen? Right. When did the nations bring wealth for the temple? Uh, when did God fill the temple with his glory? Uh, when did the latter glory of the temple surpass the former? What kind of peace did God promise here? I think we should dig into these questions and and see what we're, what we're going to find. Um so Nick, maybe we'll start with you. When did the nations bring wealth for the temple? Verse seven.
0: Yeah, verse verse seven, um, I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, I will fill this house with glory. And because of the context, verse six, yet once more, in a little while, that language of in a little while, for me it puts a time limit on this. Um that is to say, this is not some Prophecy for even us, a yet future date, some over 2,500 years later, uh, when Jesus comes back for the final time. Instead, this seems, it sounds like it's going to happen in the immediate future for the remnant, uh, for the remnant that's come back to the land. Um, In fact, from Ezra 6 and verse 8, uh, that perhaps serves to show that this prophecy was fulfilled by none other than King Darius. King Darius, he financed out of uh, the very treasury that was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, out of that treasury, the Babylonian treasury, which they had filled up with all the stuff they'd taken from the promised land and the temple and all that. So Ezra, when he came um, approximately 70 years later, he came loaded with silver and gold from the king and from his counselors as well. 7 verse 15 of Ezra says that. So even the silver and the gold of other nations, that's Yahweh's too. And I think that helps us uh, understand verse eight. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, even in these foreign stockpiles and these foreign banks, these foreign treasuries that even that is Yahweh's and he's going to give it to his people through Ezra. It seems that's, that's my take on it. Uh, Does it make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I mean, and that's, That's for sure a legitimate point, because looking back on the Exodus, where they get all the gold and silver for the tabernacle from the Egyptians, and they plundered the Egyptians by making themselves so detestable because of all the curses, that they just said, get out of here, take all the gold, and leave.
0: Well, related to this, still in verse 7, Alex,
1: when did God fill the temple with His glory? This one really gets me thinking, Nick. So, this was my head scratcher, right? So, Yahweh's glory rested on Mount Sinai. That's Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 through 17. Yahweh's glory filled the tabernacle. That's Exodus chapter 40, Mm -hmm. verses 34 and 35. Yahweh's glory rested and filled the Temple of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. But to my knowledge, never. In the Bible or in any Second Temple literature, does the glory of Yahweh fill the Second Temple?
0: Now that is interesting. Um, The the question I had was, okay, is it it Yahweh's glory or is it just glory generally speaking? It doesn't seem like it's specified here. Um, And if it's just glory generally speaking, it could refer to those material treasures which the nations would contribute Of course, with a messianic view, and uh, there'll be more on this in, uh, I think, the next question, um, the manifestation of the glory of Yahweh would be Jesus himself. Uh, That would be when the Jewish people beheld his glory, uh, even in the temple. Um, You remember when Jesus, after he's born and his parents take him to the temple, there's an old man there named Simeon who sings a song, Uh, and part of the song, while holding the Christ child, he sings in the temple, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's Luke 2.32, by the way. Mm, Of course, the problem with this view is
1: that little phrase there, in a little while. Mm, That's true, Nick. Uh, The phrase, in a little while, does sort of set some time constraints here, but I have one possible solution, right? And it's a little controversial, but hey, you know, that's nothing new to me or to us or the podcast, so I'm going to throw it out there. (laughs) uh, The phrase, in a little while, it is absent from the Septuagint. Hmm. Now, usually when the Septuagint and the Masoretic text disagree, I go to the Dead Sea Scrolls for like the tiebreaker. Okay. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are too damaged in this portion of Haggai to get a good reading.
0: Well, drat. So I
1: couldn't do that. So uh, let's just throw this out there. All right. When the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time, they are not quoting what we know as the Masoretic Text. They are quoting the Septuagint. Right. So whenever the uh, De- Masoretic Text and Septuagint Uh, this is a second thing whenever the masoretic text and septuagint disagree the dead sea scrolls almost most of the time almost most of the time let me back that up yes most of the time (laughs) (laughs) the dead sea scrolls agree with the septuagint more often than the masoretic text so here's what i think i think that time constraint in a little while i think that was added by masoretic scribes because you got to remember masoretic scribes that they were way later, they're hundreds of years later, after the church, right? They arose out of rabbinic Judaism, this new type of Judaism that had to be invented because they don't have a temple anymore, and Mosaic Judaism requires a temple. So why would the Masoretic Scribes add this little time constraint in a little while, just slip that little phrase in there? I think it's because they wanted to discredit any kind of Christian notion of Messianic fulfillment. That is
0: an interesting theory, and I mean, it, it makes sense because you mentioned the quotation of the Septuagint in the New Testament. Overwhelmingly, that's where they go to to quote from. And where this passage is quoted, um, you mentioned it earlier, Hebrews twelve twenty six. It all it reads is, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. There's no, in a little while, right? no, no
1: time element there. Right. Interesting. Well, Nick, in verse nine, talks about the latter glory surpassing the uh, former glory of the temple. So, when did the latter glory of the temple surpass the former?
0: Well, it will take uh, over five centuries, but eventually, God the Son, full of God the Holy Spirit, will walk into the temple corridors. And I know, I know, my blending That's, yeah, is showing. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> not a little while. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> That's right. So um, only Jesus can bring either the temple or he can bring Jerusalem peace. That's the rest of verse 9 here. In this place, I will give peace. Uh, In fact, um, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 42, uh, he even mentions something about this. Would that you, even you, had known that this day... Uh, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He came to bring peace to them, but they uh, rejected his offer. Um, and so he weeps over Jerusalem there in Luke 19. Um, so he's the Prince of Peace, and he's full of the glory of Yahweh, and then he does eventually walk those temple corridors. That's, again, kind of a blended view,
1: but I, I see that point. I only have one thing to say and the word became flesh and we saw his glory right <laughs> glory yeah. as the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth i rest my case my up. i mean that has that has to be it right i mean cuz you
0: you mentioned earlier that you never they never have the divine presence the, the 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 cloud come down and fill the the second temple
1: anything like that you know it's just yeah it's that's got to be it well, Nick, tell me a little bit more about this peace. What kind of peace did God promise?
0: You know that I am aware of. Jerusalem never had peace with her enemies. In fact, there is going to be a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes <clears> the <throat> Fourth who's going to be coming um, in a few centuries, and he's going to do, <clears throat> excuse me, some terrible, terrible things to oh, the yeah. Jewish people. Nasty, right inside their temple. Yep, um, right on the temple grounds. And the Maccabees, they're going to fight against the powers that be in their day as well. So hard to
1: pinpoint this down. Or is it, Alex? Uh, I just have one thing to say. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. That's my case. (laughs) That's got to be it. (laughs) Oh, by Uh, the way, Maccabees, we should cover that in our next Apocrypha episode. uh, Sure, I'm game for that, yeah. Yeah good stuff. Um, verses
0: 11 through 14, Alex, this is an interesting little uh, little um, teaching from Haggai uh, parable about clean and unclean stuff. Verses 11 through 14, what does Haggai's parable of clean and unclean
1: transfer mean? Uh, that's a good question. These are kind of confusing parables. Um, you do some textual comparison with the Septuagint, uh makes it a little more confusing on the one hand, but it might clear up a few different things. So I just want to start with that. There are some differences and additions detected in the Septuagint for these parables. Okay. So in verse 13, uh, the thing becoming unclean is called it in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint, it's called he, like a person. Hmm. Um, now in verse 15, this is probably more important is that there's a bunch of stuff added to verse 15. So here's what's added to verse 15. First, I'll read the the Masoretic text, which says, but now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. Um, Here's what the Septuagint adds on top of that. It says, and whoever should come near to that place, I'm assuming that place means the temple, shall be defiled For the sake of their early gains Oh that doesn't sound good It says they shall suffer Because of their toils Ooh that doesn't sound good either And it says you hated Those who rebuke at the gates Ooh that's got a sting Triple whammy there Yeah yeah so here's what I think it's saying I think it's saying that The temple will not Make you clean She's like what are you talking about I should be able to bring my sacrifice and become clean No 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 The temple won't make you clean if your heart strays from God. I think that's the holy meat transfer idea. So I don't think the garment or anything that the garment touches is holy. The meat's holy. And I think that's the idea is they're thinking like they can have an unholy heart and just bring that to the temple and everything's all good. It's like, no, 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 no. The heart's got to be with God. It's got to be sincere, contrite um otherwise you're not going to be made holy in fact i think it's saying nick that the opposite is going to happen i think he's saying your unfaithfulness will be like a defiling thing that spreads to everybody and everything you touch even the temple so you bring that defilement into the temple you make the temple unclean woo that's that's harsh steep yeah yeah yep. um that, that's kind of what i thought but it is confusing the parables, I kind of get lost every now and then. What do you think?
0: Well, yeah, the, the the transference of ritual holiness, just generally speaking in this parable specifically, it's always been kind of confusing to me. But this is brought by the prophet Haggai to the priests. And if anyone should know about the subtle distinctions of ritual holiness, it should be the priests. That's true. Um by the way, the, the date for this, the 24th day of the ninth month, tells us this is a little more than two months after uh, the previous sermon that Haggai had preached that we were looking at there in verses 1 through 9. Uh, so a little uh, a little more than two months later comes this final sermon. And so he talks about holy meat transfers holiness to garments which carry it, but that garment cannot transfer holiness to a third object. And he uses bread, stew, and wine, and all that. So that was the first um, parable. The second is uh, similar but different. A person who is unclean by touching a dead body transfers that uncleanness onto anything else he or she may touch. So it sounds like the remnant were like little kids eating spaghetti. (laughs) <laughs> Alex, you have kids, I have kids. You give them spaghetti, and by the time the meal's done, there's red sauce everywhere. Oh, man. And uh, the work. So, so what's happened then is that the work and the worship of the people was unclean. It reminds me of that little girl from the movie Signs. It's contaminated. <laughs> uh, Talk about all the water in the cups and all that. So, um,. It suggested that some of the people in Haggai's day thought uh, something like, why even build a temple? Hmm. We can just sacrifice without it. And for me, carrying this across the bridge today, that sounds an awful lot like those who say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't really want the church. And that, that kind of movement of Jesus, yes, and the church, no. Um, Why do we even need the church? We can just love God and love Jesus and everything's cool. Um, But here's the thing, and it's just as you were talking about, Alex, about the heart. Even good deeds like love for God, that can be tainted by sinful attitudes. And a sinful attitude of, you know, I don't really need the bride of Christ. That is, that's, that's the epitome of slapping the face of Christ, the one you claim to love. So... Uh, The more things change, the more they stay the same. This kind of stuff still shows up even today,
1: I'm persuaded. That's definitely interesting. Uh, That gives me a few things to think about for sure, including our uh, sponsor. We should reach out to Clorox. I think they'd be a great sponsor for our episode (laughs) here. That's (laughs) right. Bleach those clothes. That's right. Clorox wipes, man, lifesaver. All right, Nick, in verse 15, um, we have another question here it says, do consider from this day onward. What are they to consider so carefully?
0: So let's see here. Um, the next few verses, the context for the 16, 17, he's going to talk about, you know, when, when you came to get a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10, when you came... Uh, to the wine vat to draw 50 measures. There were only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, with hail, yet you did not turn to me. It seems like they were supposed to consider the economic uh, distress and disaster that they were facing. They didn't have enough goods. Uh, We saw this in the previous episode on Haggai chapter 1, that failure to keep covenant led to economic disaster, and that's rooted in the law. Yep. Yep, Deuteronomy 28, verses 22 through 24 And yet, despite the calamity, the blight, the mildew, the hail, there was no repentance. And so, Yahweh is reminding them and telling them, that's what you need to think about. Take a moment, pause, and think about it. And I said this before, I'm gonna keep saying it, Christians ought to be the most thoughtful people on the planet. Failure to think breeds ignorance, especially in regards to sacred things. And ignorance eventually gives way to disobedience. Uh, someone once shared with me that to muse, you know, you know, the idea of to muse, it means to think about something, to ruminate. And so to amuse is to distract so as not to think. In fact, that prefix of negation, ah, that's what it, that's, you put those together, ah, muse, and you're, you're, you you're stop thinking. And too many people today are amusing them the, the are amusing themselves into this morass of thoughtlessness mm. um and that again the more things change the more they stay the same that's that was happening then i think it
1: still happens today does that make sense yeah i think it does i appreciate your um bringing out the amusement idea there we certainly are a culture of constant amusement it's hard to just uh, get people to just sit down and rest and, uh, yeah, like you said, think considers these things, uh, that verse, consider these things, consider your ways. Uh, it's in chapter one. I think you mentioned that. Right. And it's this idea that, uh, literally from the language you are, you are setting your heart before yourself. It's like you're reaching into your heart, you're pulling it out and you're holding it up in the light to examine it. And you're saying, is there something wrong here? Wow. So, Very powerful picture and ideas. Nick, in verse 18, uh, it talks about considering from this day onward. And we have this little time frame here because it says God did all these things right. He struck them with mildew. He struck their crops. Um, It's my opinion that they're probably really hungry. They're starving a little Mm -hmm. bit. They're they're, uh, below subsistence. They don't have enough to meet the daily needs for food. How long did God curse their work before the founding of the temple in verse 18?
0: Yeah, the um the Bible knowledge commentary says 3 months. Um but the again since the day of the that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, that was done in 536 BC. You right. can see Ezra 3 for that. So I'm going to go with um just some quick math in my head, 16 years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right, because three months is not long enough to have all your crops come to nothing. I mean, it takes at least six months to fully bring in the different crops depending on what you're growing. you got the early crops of the barley, the late crops of the wheat, and then the latter crops of the other uh, agricultural items. I mean, three months is not enough time to get the message that God is upset. No, I think 16 years is right on. Now, this last few uh these last few verses, Nick, might get into some uh, again confusing territory, which, you know, what's new, we're talking about messianic stuff most likely. So, <laughs> uh verse 21, Zerubbabel gets a spe- special message. Before, it was always to Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and the remnant, but it's just Zerubbabel this time. Why does he alone get a special special message?
0: Um, it could be, I mean, you, and you mentioned this earlier, the connections to Joshua, and maybe, um, maybe Zerubbabel is the contemporary Joshua of the exilic period. Um, maybe he needed that encouragement. Um, the New American Commentary suggests that the promises find fulfillment in royal rather than priestly figure. Um, and so it... it it's the governor who needs this word. (laughs) Right. Um, and so he, he gets it
1: specifically. Uh, what do you think? Day governor. Uh, my thought was, and again, I'm not for sure because it's a a tricky verse, but, um, perhaps Zerubbabel is not supposed to see himself as too kingly. In other words, I don't think God wants Zerubbabel to see himself as another David Hmm. or someone who needs to raise up an army or some sort of revolutionary. In other words, all that stuff with battling and taking down armies and horses, Yahweh says in the verse, he's going to take care of all that. So Zerubbabel, you just wait until Yahweh takes you as his signet ring. Yahweh says he'll do it after all the battling is done. And by the way, Yahweh's going to do the battling. So you wait, Zerubbabel, you hang tight. And you just wait until Yahweh takes you as his signet ring. But until then, wait. Now, did Zerubbabel ever see these things in his lifetime? Uh, If you're talking about physical warfare, I don't think so. Not to Mm. my knowledge. No. No, no. But God says he's going to overthrow thrones and kingdoms in verse 22. So God, when did God overthrow the thrones and kingdoms? Um, as we saw previously,
0: verse six, because um, this is connected to verse twenty-one. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, um, and then overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Um, that cosmic shaking, Yahweh is sky shaker. Um, that that refers to judgment, um, <clears throat> and so uh, I think it's I think it's similar to that idea of God just taking the nations by their feet and shaking them. Um, in judgment, like he did with Babylon, like he did with Judah, he's going to do it now with uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, My take, what
1: do you think? Well, I think uh, when you say cosmic shaking there, I agree, but I'm going to add another element to the cosmic side of it, because I think this does refer to spiritual thrones, spiritual kingdoms, and that those spiritual powers that are eventually overthrown by Christ at the cross and why does he have to overthrow these spiritual powers it's because he wants to take back all those gentile nations from under their domain remember colossians you know we gotta be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light chapter two tells us that's what he did at the cross is he disarmed those powers from having any kind of authority or legal right over those nations and so um You know, of course, there's this phrase in there that says, on that day. So whether we're talking about earthly kingdoms or the spiritual powers behind the earthly kingdoms, the Zerubbabel of Haggai chapter 2 would not be there at the fall of uh, Medo-Persia. He's not going to be there at the fall of Greece. He's not going to be there at the fall of Rome. He's not going to be there at the cross. So this verse it must of necessity be talking about a new Zerubbabel, just like eventually there's going to have to be a new Moses that Moses himself prophesied about, saying, God will raise up for you another one among your own countrymen, just like me, and to you, you shall listen to him. But you go to the end, so that's Deuteronomy, right? But if you go Mm -hmm. to the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, uh, it makes pretty clear that that wasn't Joshua who... Uh, was the 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 new moses joshua was a good leader and he was appointed by god but he wasn't the new moses because it says in the end of the book uh no one including joshua got to see and be with god uh face to face and to have the things performed through moses to the same extent of the like power and miracles that were performed through moses so uh just like it wasn't joshua in the days of moses who was the new moses i don't think it's uh Zerubbabel in Haggai's day that we're to look for in this verse. I think it's Jesus. That's my, that's my take. Well, Maybe. and
0: <clears throat> uh, related to this, because it, it, um, the context leans into verse 23, the last chapter of the book as well. That's true. Um, Zerubbabel is called a signet ring there, one of the last phrases of the book, I will, and I will make you a Make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So, Alex, how is Zerubbabel a signet ring?
1: Yeah, if you, if you, for our audience members, if they don't know, a signet ring is just like a personal signature. It's like a stamp, but it had a special design in your ring, and you would stamp that ring into some clay or wax, and that was like your unique personal ID, and uh, it was hard to forge. So this was a mark of property, and... Uh, so I think Zerubbabel becomes the mark, in other words, the stamp within the messianic seed line, pointing us towards the Messiah, just like all the other puzzle pieces that point us towards the Messiah. And yet it's still cryptic enough to keep the plan hidden and unknown, uh, fully unknown. Um, I'm thinking of a verse in First Peter, right? Peter says, All those things the prophet said before concerning the Messiah... Uh, angels wanted to look into those things, and they didn't even know what that meant, right? Right. And there's another verse, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 3, but I could be off, um, where it talks about, had the rulers and authorities known the plan of God, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus, now would they? And I take that to mean the spiritual rulers, because uh, the spiritual rulers, the Satan, all his forces... Uh, yeah, I don't think they quite knew what they were doing when they crucified Jesus because had they known, they probably wouldn't have done it because they sealed their own fate in that act. So that's that's what I think about the puzzle pieces and all that. So how is Zerubbabel's signet ring? I think Zerubbabel becomes that stamp in the genealogical uh, list uh, and the the. You know, shadow and type and all that stuff that points us towards the Messiah to come. And then he did come and it was Jesus and he fits it all. That's what I think.
0: That makes sense. Uh, the ownership aspect, there's also uh, uh, an authority aspect to this in the ancient Near East, um, authentication uh, as well. And so um, that signet ring is just kind of the figurative way of marking Zerubbabel as this, um, perhaps even in his day, he represents divine authority, and he appears as a representative for the Lord. But, of course, as you mentioned, it bleeds into and looks forward to uh, the
1: greater thing, which is Christ. Well said. Well, Nick, that's the book of Haggai. That's it. Nailed it. (laughs) <laughs> uh well, uh I guess that's going to do
0: it for us. Be sure and go into Google Play, the iTunes store, search for the podcast Swordplay, all one word, and um you'll find the episodes there. Give us a review and help us get the word out about this podcast.
1: Absolutely. And if you have any questions at all, send those questions to Swordplay podcast at gmail.com, Podcast at gmail.com. Also, uh, Nick, what book are we going to cover next time? Uh, we're going to pick up in the book of Philippians. All right, Philippians chapter 1. So if you want to dig into Philippians with us, be reading it in your daily Bible reading. Just throw it in there, even if it's just chapter 1. And then come join us next time on another episode of Swordplay.